Good morning to each of you. Greetings in the name of Jesus again. How many of you enjoy a good song service? We just sang in that last song, we ask Jesus, because that heavenly singing here on earth has ravished me so. In other words, and then we said, in other words, let me share in that angelic singing in glory. If the song services here are so enjoyable, so bless, uh, such a blessing to our souls, how much more the singing when we get to the other side? Certainly been blessed already this morning. For the message this morning, I would like to again look at the subject of identity, tradition, and culture. We're going to be looking more specifically this morning at the thought of identity. And this subject represents, as we said last Sunday, one of the greatest spiritual existential threats, I believe, of our time. There is a prominent um, telecommunication company here in Canada. You probably know who I mean. That uses this marketing slogan, the future is friendly. The future is friendly. Somehow that bothers me every time I read it. There's something I, th- I feel deceptive and dangerous in that slogan as it relates in the context of a telecommunication company. Is the advancement of technology as it relates to the, fu- the future, is that friendly? Should we see it as friendly? I'm just going to leave that now. We're going to go into that in detail. But you think about this whole con in the context of identity, tradition, and culture. Turn with me now, first of all, to Colossians 2 and verse 8 again. And notice this verse as a basis for are the warnings that we take have in Scripture. Colossians 2 and verse 8. The concern of Paul that we would not be led astray. He says, beware. In other words, be careful, be alert. Take notice, be aware. Lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. We also looked at 2 Timothy 3 there in some of those verses, familiar verses, but applicable to the day in which we live. This know also that in the last days, perilous times shall come, dangerous times will come, or we could say are here. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof from such turn away. So there we have a very vivid description of the last days at that point. 
Paul is there writing to Timothy and saying that these days are going to come. And I would like to say this morning on the basis of the scripture and the basis of our knowledge of the time in which we live, and we're going to be looking at that in the message this morning, that these are the times in which we are living right now. I'm not saying that, you know, that uh, this is a fulfillment of all of it, and it could get worse. But I, I believe from the bottom of my heart this morning that we are living presently in these perilous times. And we're going to illustrate that in this message by the grace of God. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would enlighten our hearts and to help us to discern, to understand the times in which we live, to understand the dangers, to understand the threats. But Father, we also thank you that you have promised to give us the victory. You have promised to be here for us, that you will be with us all the way to the end. And so, Father, we grasp by faith that promise, and we want your wisdom and power to be in our lives. And so, Father, illuminate our hearts again this morning. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Last Sunday, we introduced this subject by looking at the relationship of identity, tradition, and culture. This morning, I have to confess that this is probably going to be a bit more like a history lesson. But I I feel that it's important to lay out for us how we got here in relation to identity, tradition, and culture. Because if we don't understand how we got here, we're not going to have a clear understanding of where we're at today, presently, and how we're going to go forward, and what is the path forward. And so this morning, it will be some history as it relates to this whole thought, again, of identity, tradition, and culture, mostly this morning focusing on the aspect of identity. I have to say, too, that in, in looking at this, this series of messages has sort of grown a bit, so I'm not quite sure where all this is going to go in the future, as God directs. We face some pretty intense cultural pressures of these last days right now, and I think, for all of us, I say this of myself, that I don't think that I have been nearly as aware as I should have been of what has been happening. And um, that will come out as we go forward. Cultural pressures of the, of the last days. Much of this has to do with changes to the whole concept of personal identity. And as we said last Sunday, the Christian church has not escaped this plague. The effects of these pressures are all around us and upon us. And I believe that God wants us to be like the men of Issachar there in in 1 Chronicles 12 and verse 32. I love this scripture. And And we just have to keep looking, brethren, of how it applies to us. But there it says that the men of Issachar says, which were men that had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. We are called to be men of understanding, to understand the times in which we live, to know how to direct our families, to know how to direct our young people, to know how to direct the church in in these last days. And and that must be our prayer, that God would give us that understanding and that wisdom. I do not think that 
our like for our personal family and our and this and our and the churches to survive spiritually that we can merely sit by and not face the reality of what is happening and also right with that be willing and ready to make the necessary changes to counteract these deceptions that we are not asleep as it were first john 5 and verse 19 there says that we know that we are of god and the whole world lieth in wickedness. If you look that up in the original language, it has it could be translated this way, that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Or another commentary referred to it as that the whole world lieth in the lap of the wicked one. And so there's that the forces of darkness around us today. The modern digital world of communication and we refer to this with the shrinking of the global village and the effects of this on personal identity, tradition, and culture is staggering. And the devil wants us, the people of God, to be asleep on what is happening around us and to us. And he wants the gradual changes of modern life to somehow seem friendly and convenient and helpful. And we have accepted a lot of, 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 of modern inventions and technology. And I'm not saying that it's wrong, but I'll have we calculated the effect of some of these things in our lives. This morning we want to take a closer look at the concept of personal identity and the implications for us today. Now, there's four areas I'd like to just look at, and we're going to have to move pretty quickly through this this morning. What is identity? The biblical perspective of, of identity, the historical perspective of identity, and the present-day perspective of identity. Now, first of all, what is identity, and why is it so important? One of the questions that, that from last Sunday relates to this. You know, what is identity? Well, the dictionary says the distinguishing character or personality of an of an individual. So this involves nationality. Language, personality, spirituality, morality, family, education, upbringing, life experiences and choices, and um, the choice of friends, a worldview, all those things can be wrapped up in the whole concept of a personal identity. We can say it this way. It's a set of characteristics that define us as an individual and includes our view of ourselves which, of course, then affects our interaction with the world around us. Now, I want to inject this into this part of identity because I think it's important. We are, we are created by God, body, soul, and spirit. And we're not going to go uh, deeply into this, but, but just a bit. And you think about identity because I think it, it um, explains it. Somewhat for us. So God created us body, soul, and spirit. The innermost part of us is spirit. This is where we were created in the likeness of God. We had a spiritual relationship with him. We have a soul, and then all this resides in the body. God created us spirit, soul, and body. Now, like I said, we're not going to go deeply into this, but our spirit is what links us to the spirit world and the connection with God as a Christian. 
with a spiritual fellowship with God. And of course, in the fallen state, where man goes into deep spiritual darkness, that capacity also has, in, in a perversion, has the ability to communicate with the demon world. That's when someone is possessed of, of the devil. Now, <clears throat> and so, the spirit part of us communicates with God. Our, the body that God has given us, the tent to dwell in, is, is our interaction with the material world in which we live. The soul, as it were, is between the spirit and the body, is, we could say, the uh, control center of our being. The soul <clears throat> includes the will, includes our intellect, includes our emotions, involves our personality and the influence of that. And so we have all the, um, all of this makes up the individuality of us as a person, body, soul, and spirit. And it forms what we can say a basic identity. Um, and so we can say that the spirit part of us would be our beliefs, our values. Usually it also re- reflects our worldview. In other words, how we view the world. Our view of God and, of course, spiritual interest. All that is involved in the spirit part of us. We have the soul, which is the personality, our talents, our gifts, emotions, intellect, the will. That's where the decisions are made. And, of course, God intended for those decisions to be made in the context of a spiritual relationship with him. And then we have that control going out to the body. We know in the fall of man, it was reversed. And Eve there saw that the tree was good for food. She saw it with her eyes. That was body. And it was pleasant to the a tree to be desired to make one wise, the soul, the intellect. And so in the fall, we have the, the, um, the temptations. It was the body, soul, and darkening the spirit, losing that relationship with God. Exactly opposite of what God originally intended. That's just a very brief, uh, that'd be a whole series of messages in itself. But um, <clears throat> what I'm saying is that makes up the individuality then of our, of our life. And so the body would be the physical features, expressions, habits, some of our personality, and talents or gifts are expressed in the body as well as social behavior. Now, <clears throat> beyond these characteristics of identity, spirit, soul, and body is also how we relate to and feel about ourselves. And this also is a part of this whole thing of identity. You can have the mechanics as it were. You can have the material aspect. You have a body, soul, and spirit. But also the the thing of personal identity also relates to how we view that about ourselves. Someone can have, a person can have all of this in a sense in place to a point, but actually still feel that they're totally missing something. They're they're a misfit or that uh, they don't belong. They don't know who they are. And that, that is a struggle of identity. So, <clears throat> personal identity also includes a person being comfortable and understanding themselves, understanding themselves, or there is, if that is not in place, there's going to be a continuing reaction against uh, themselves or a rejection of self-identity. And this can inform even like a mental state or a mental problem in, in relation to this. And 
One of the things that happens, especially in the time of youth, and we're not going to get into this deeply today, but in the time of youth, when there's that awareness growing about self, you know, who I am, relation to my parents, relation to the future, my life experiences so far, and where my life is, is going, the path of my life. And there, there's a, a sort of an upheaval in the time of youth in understanding that self-awareness and becoming comfortable with the person that you are. Some of those things you can change, some of the things you cannot change. You cannot change your DNA. You, you know, that's fixed. God shows that for us. And there's a sense in which, you know, you can't totally change, you know, your level of intellect. You know, the, the IQ, as we say, that God gave us, we can develop it to a point. But it's fine if there's a certain limit to that. And then there's, of course, the spiritual relationship. And that can grow because we can grow in our relationship with God. But all that encompassed together is our personal identity. And as we get older, especially, like I said, through the teenage years, we, we develop that comfort level with who we are and what we can grow in and change and move forward in and be a useful person in society. Now, <clears throat> we're going to leave that for now. And I'd like to now look at the biblical perspective of personal identity as it, we start in the scriptures and work our way through this to understand where we are today. We're going to start back in Genesis 1. We're not going to, you can turn to these if you want to, but I'm going to read them for us just to keep moving. You can listen. We're going to start with the first man and his personal identity. Genesis 1.26, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. We have the creation of man. There was, there was a, a personal identity because he was created in the image of God. Now, just think about this in relation to Adam, his identity related to him being created in the image of God. It's very interesting. You go to uh, the genealogy of Jesus, which is traced back to Adam. In Luke chapter 3, verse 23, and there Luke traces that. Every generation, and Jesus, it says it there in 323, and Jesus uh, himself began to be about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli. So Joseph, or Jesus being 30 years of age, as was supposed the son of Joseph, that was inserted there for correction or clarification, by the translators, but then you go to the end of the chapter, chapter 3 there, verse 38, and you get to, after all these names, all the way from Jesus, Joseph, and all the way down through, or you can say back up through, until Adam, and then it's interesting, it says, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. You see that lineage? 
all the way from God creating Adam, because Adam was the son of God, and all the way down through that lineage to Jesus Christ. I find it fascinating that all that was clearly defined, and I know there's various reasons for that in relation to the Jewish traditions and all of that, but it is interesting. Every person in the scriptures, and as far as the people of God in the Old Testament, every one of them was linked to their father, which was the son, which was the son, which was the son. You see that? All the way down through. That was, their, that was a major part of their personal identity. You go back to Genesis 5, verse 3. It says there, And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. Interesting. Adam had a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. What was Seth's identity, personal identity? It started right off on the platform that he was the son of of Adam. He was the son of Adam. And he was in, in that lineage to Christ. Every person in the scriptures was always linked to their father. And it's interesting, too, that when they were raised or adopted by someone else, they were linked to the parents that raised them. This is interesting, too, because Lot was adopted and raised by Abraham. Esther was adopted and raised by Mordecai. And so you have that relationship as well. Now, another part of this is related to the the parental responsibility of fathers teaching their children. Now, turn with me to Deuteronomy 6. I'm not going to read all these verses, but I just want you to, to notice something here in relation to, it's a familiar scripture, Deuteronomy 6. And just notice with me some of the wording here. First of all, you know that this is the commandment of God for the fathers to teach their children. Now notice uh, verse 2. And the middle of, that, middle of that verse, it says, Which I command thee, thou and thy son and thy son's son, all the days of thy life. You see that, that connection there? And it's an identity because it's you, your son, and your grandson. And... Um, that that is a teaching that was supposed to, to reach down. Now, in some of these Old Testament times, they could have taught their great-great-great-grandson, maybe, as old as they were, although they didn't start having a family until they were a couple hundred years old, some of them. But, um, but in general here, it's your son and your grandson. I would love to be able to teach my great-grandson, but I probably won't, probably won't happen. Today's, today's life. But you understand what I'm saying? There's that connection. That's the identity. And God built the whole concept of spiritual teaching and to, to teach the works of God to the next generation was a part of that identity in father to son and then to grandson. Notice verse 3. Also another term here that is used. 
uh, the middle of the verse again, and that ye may increase mightily as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee. Notice that it's the God of thy fathers. How many times in the Old Testament do you read the God of thy fathers? It's over and over again, right? It's the whole concept of that personal identity, you know, and that lineage down through that was passed on from one to the other. And so there was always that connection. We could go to down to verse 7. And notice there, verse 7, and thou, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. Again, that connection. Down in verse 10, in the middle of that verse. Um, well, I'll read the whole verse. And it shall be when the Lord thy God shall be, have brought thee into the land, which he sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Now again, how many times in the Old Testament can we read the God of thy fathers, or thy fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We still refer to the God of Abraham, right? See that connection all the way down through? There was an identity in relation to the people of God that carried from one generation to the next in the faithful lineage of God's people. Now, here be another illustration in relation to the lineage, or we could say in the um, identity that I also found find interesting, in Genesis 4, we have the uh, lineage of Cain, who was not of the godly line. But, but there's still that, that identity connection in relation from one generation to the next. Genesis 4.20, speaking of the wives or the descendants of Cain, it says, And Ada bare Jabel, he was the father of such as dwell in tents, and of such as have cattle. So he was the father of the farmers, we could say, or the shepherds. The next verse says that his brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all such as handled the harp and organ. So there we have, he was the father of the musicians. And then Zillah, she also bare Tubal-Cain, an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron, and the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. And so there we have, this man was the father of all those who were like maybe a blacksmith or a metal worker. It's interesting. I just point this out to show again identity. You see? There was a trade that a father had learned, and he was passed on. He said, this is, this is the trade of this family. And he was the father of all those who came after him that learned that. Again, you can see here that there was a basic succession from father to son. Now, I'd like to leave that part of it in relation to the scriptures and that, that uh, the aspect of identity. We can see that very clearly in the, in the Old Testament, and uh, <clears throat> some of it carries on into the New Testament. Um, it was said of, uh, well, I'm just going to leave that. I'll come back to that. 
Now, in general, the family unit worked together in whatever trade, the sons learning and working with their father, the girls learning from their mothers so that one day they could manage their own household. That was, the, that was their way of life. That was just the way it was, and we, can, we noticed some of that in the Old Testament scriptures. Now, it was interesting, for most of the last 5,700 years, there was little change in the basic personal identity of a person from one generation to, to the next. It carried from one generation to the next very naturally, we could say, in, in general. And there was that, that connection to the previous g- generation. It's interesting, my wife and I were in um, Abbotsford on Friday, picked up some trees at a nursery. There was... Um, Two men came out to help, two helpers there to load the trees, both from India. One of them was very, very quiet and shy. The other one was quite talkative. It was interesting. He asked a lot of questions where we live, what we do, and all kinds of things like that. And um, it's interesting. Um, I'm not quite sure. We weren't quite sure if it was his father there, too. He was picking the seeds off the trees for um, in order to be able to start more trees. But... Um, he came and talked a little bit then, too, but you can hardly understand him. But this uh, younger man, um, I'm not sure even how we got onto the subject, but he was talking about um, still living at home. Oh, we asked where he was from in India, and he was a Punjabi, and and he was saying there's only like 2% of those in India that actually, you know, be of that particular caste. And, and uh, we talked about, you know, the traditional life and, and he said that uh, <clears throat> he still lives at home. He said, um, you know, in relation to his mother and his father, um, very traditional. He said, he said, I would not even be able to, I would not even be free to go out and buy a T-shirt without asking my parents. And this, I think he's at least, we thought, about 30 years old, single, but living at home. He said, I wouldn't even go out and buy a T-shirt without asking my parents. And he said, um, my wife said something about marriage. Oh, yeah, he said, arranged marriages. He said, my, my parents would, will pick my wife. Very, very tra- traditional. But, you know, that, I was thinking about in relation to this message, because this message was going through my head all the whole trip. But anyway, um, isn't that interesting? For almost 5,700 years, or maybe 5,000 years, just to put an approximate date, that's the way life was. You see it in the Old Testament? That's, that was normal. Us Westerners look at that and say, don't know if I'd want to live that way. And I'm not saying it's necessarily right versus you know, better or not. I'm, I'm not trying to necessarily decide that. But I will say what has changed Let's look a little more at this. Now, the whole aspect of his, the historical perspective of, of identity, I would just like to say this is in the New Testament as well. Maybe I should have said this earlier. But it's interesting that Jesus, as a young man, as a boy growing up, he learned and worked in the carpenter trade of his father. And he was from Nazareth, which also was part of his identity. And so... When they wondered who he was, when he started preaching, 
Is not this the carpenter's son? You see his identity? What did Nathaniel say when uh, Philip said, you got to come see you? I think we found the Messiah. He said, did anything good come out of Nazareth? That was an identity. He was from Nazareth. He was a carpenter. He said, well, where did this man learn, uh, learn how to read and you know, have, have learning like this? He was considered ignorant from a little town, dusty town of Nazareth, and he was a carpenter's son. That was his identity as a person. That's how they knew him. So we know his brothers, his sisters are here with us. You know, whence cometh, you know, this man? You see, that was his personal identity. So what I'm just saying is, again, that is an illustration of how that personal identity is tied with our upbringing, where we come from, who our parents are, and all of that. Now, some more interesting things as you think about identity. Sometimes we use at work, we use a drone to fly over the mill site to estimate log decks, the volume of logs in the yard. Sometimes we use drones to calculate the size of a chip pile, a sawdust pile. You can put a drone up there and take measurements with a, with a camera, and you get that overview how big the chip pile is, they can estimate how many cubic meters are in there and all of that. What I'm going to look at right now with us together is, it's like a a drone overview of history. And again, the question is, how did we get here? And we have to know how we got here to know where we're at today and where we're going. If you don't enjoy history, I hope after this you will Maybe like it a little bit better. It's very fascinating. Just think with me a little bit. <clears throat> For almost 6,000 years, that's the round number. To be more exact, 5,700 years. 5,700 years, there was little change in the world. From what we talked about and looked at in the Old Testament, right into the New Testament times. Majority of the New Testament times, or all the New Testament times, there was very little change. There. Transportation was by horse. If you were wealthy enough to own a horse, or rent one, or you walked. Man walked for 5,700 years, more or less, to get where he was going. Or taking a horse. Or a carriage. When Paul was on his way to Rome, there he got closer to the city. They were able to take a carriage to the city. So it was horses, it was donkeys, it was mules, and it was camels. That was the basic mode of transportation. And for farm work, the same thing. Basically, if they weren't doing it by hand and they could afford a horse, a donkey, a mule, they would use those for farm work. Otherwise, life was the same. Across the world, more or less, like I said, for almost 6,000 years. Much of what we know today of modern life is all within the last 300 years. Now, this is hard to illustrate. I'm just trying to get it into our heads where we stand today. Those spaces 
represent millenniums. So 6,000 years of human history. Life was pretty much the same. We talked about transportation, farm work, whatever it was, family life, more or less the same. The changes all happened in our modern world in the last 300 years. And we're going to look at some of those dates. If these stand each for a thousand years, the world more or less operated much the same until about right here. What we think is normal, what we expect of modern life, the majority of humanity never knew a thing about. The prophet Daniel, remember, he talked about the last days. When knowledge is going to be increased, men are going to run to and fro throughout the whole earth. So there were some glimpses of that in the prophetic scriptures, but they really did not understand it. One of the Old Testament prophets talked about the chariots jostling each other in the streets. It was just a picture of something that he was trying to understand, possibly of a future event. The Industrial Revolution from 1760 to at least 1840 is what changed, largely changed the world from all these millennia, thousands of years until the Industrial Revolution. I'm not necessarily saying this morning that the Industrial Revolution was evil or bad. But what I'm saying is, if you look at it as an overview, it changed the whole cultural pattern of interrelationships, and we're going to get to that, and it's going to be the identity issue. Okay, so the Industrial Revolution from 1760 to 1840 changed the world. Just listen to these. 1712, Thomas Newcomen invented the steam engine. 1785, Emden Cartwright invents the power loom, which means they could make cloth a lot faster and better. 1793, Eli Whitney invents the cotton gin. 1801, Richard Trevithick invents the steam locomotive. 1837, John Deere invents the steel plow. 1844, Samuel Morris invents the telegraph. 1846, Elias Howe invents the sewing machine. 1876, Alexander Graham Bell invents the telephone. 1879, Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. 1903, Henry Ford began production of the Model A automobile. 1903, the Wright brothers made their first controlled sustained flight in the air. And I'm going to jump now because the list will get too long. Uh, 1972, email was invented. 1973, the cell phone was invented. Never really became popular until the uh, late 80s, early 90s. 1980, the VCR was introduced. 1985, IBM personal computer was introduced. 1989, the flip phone, the compact flip phone was invented. 2002, the first camera phone was used, was invented or introduced. 2004, Facebook was launched. 2007, the iPhone was introduced as the first smartphone. And I stopped there. Since then, there's been just... 
We have artificial intelligence in computing. We use it some at the, at the mill. Artificial intelligence, AI, we use it in our grading system. We can be 98 to 99% accurate. As the, it, what I'm talking about in AI is it's software that is written to teach itself. It, it teaches itself with the da- data that we put into it. What we use it for in the grading system is, uh, we've been running it now for three or four years, we are 98 to 99% accurate of telling the difference between a, a pine board and a spruce board. 98 to 99% accurate. If we say we want to pull all the spruce out of this lumber, we, we can do that with very, very high accuracy. It's, it's AI. It's artificial intelligence. That's a very benign use of that technology. There's some very, very sinister uses of that technology. I'm just giving that as an illustration of, of, of what has changed. The list that I gave you all happened within the last 300 years. There'd be lots more. Lots more. Of course, all the other changes in social networking since, as well as multiple ways technology has just exploded. So now, in the last, you could say, 20 to 40 years, more has happened to change our culture and way of life than has happened in the last 6,000 years of human history. We don't need to feel guilty about that. It's God knew all this all along, and he knew exactly when he was going to have you and I born, and when you and I were going to live in this era of time and need to face this era of time. But the challenge is for us this morning, is the, is the future friendly? When we think about what has happened, and where we are at today. I don't want to leave this as a negative, in the negative connotation. But the challenge for me is, and I think for all of us is, in relation to all the changes that have happened, where do we need to be as a people of God and moving forward and facing these things? All of these changes since the start of the Industrial Revolution 300 years ago have had a profound change to the structure of personal identity in the context of family life. Now, I'd like to step aside a little bit of this, because this is mostly as it relates to inventions and, um, and that sort of, those, those dis- discoveries. Like I say, that list could be very, very long if you brought in more. That's just a sampling. Sidestep that. There are other changes. Add to this all the changes I said about in relation to the Industrial Revolution. You have in 1848 to about 1920 was considered the first wave of feminism. And that related mostly to the right for women to vote. You have 1929 to 1931, you have the Great Depression which drove a lot of families off the family farm into the cities to work in the factories, which the Industrial Revolution built. The Industrial Revolution with the steam engine and the power that it could have, and later electricity, and they had light bulbs, and so they could work at night. They could run their factories with a night shift, which was not really possible before they had the light bulb. 
I mean, you had to work by lantern and candle, and that wasn't efficient. So that, a shift, it was a change. And so then the Great Depression happened, and a lot of families moved from the family farm to the city to work in the factories. World War One and World War Two came along, and so many men were away fighting or were killed in action in Europe, and there was a shortage of workers, and yet many mothers and girls went to work in the factories as well to keep up the, the pace of the production for not only the war, but also um, all the other things that, that were needed. Uh, you had the Vietnam War, which affected especially um, America. And we the, the residual of that, of course, um, also affected Canada. You have the hippie movement of the 1960s. I think I referred to this last Sunday with the anti-establishment and anti-tradition activism. It was the exaltation of personal freedom and the flaunting of rules. All that was involved um, in, the, in, the, in the 60s. You had the, uh, also the, the dramatic increase of divorce and remarriage from the early 70s and further changed the personal identity of, of many people. There's a lot of sociologists who point back to the, um, the time when the women went to work in the factories as you know, leading up to a lot of um, the um, the start of, of the wave of, of divorce, uh, many young people, you know, were now being raised by single parents, and uh, that can be documented also in, that, in this time period in the change. And most times, um, it was the mother without a father figure. Another uh, very influential happening was. Uh, a book that was written in 1946 by Benjamin Spock. And um, he was, um, I think, a pediatrician. But he, um, he, he went against the culture of the day in writing of how to raise children. Does any older ones remember that name at all? Benjamin Spock? It was, our parents would have been, in the days of our, our parents, it would have been... Um, Definitely, you know, popular. It was written in 1946. <clears throat> I'm just going to read you a couple of excerpts here just to tell you what happened. And um, that changed the whole thought process in relation to raising children. This is a quote now. Guide, or sorry, child-rearing experts in the early 1900s promoted conformity and detachment in raising children. In 1928, John B. Watson, one of the founders of the behaviorist psychology, argued that children should be treated as adults. Mothers should habituate their children to strict schedules, let them cry themselves to sleep, and avoid too much love and attention. In his 1930 book, Behaviorism, he wrote, this is a quote from his writing, Never, never hug or kiss them. Let them never let them sit on your lap. If you must kiss them once on the forehead, when they when they say good night, shake hands with them in the morning. Okay, that was written in in the early nineteen hundreds. I think that was, yeah, that was in nineteen thirty. Okay, that's an extreme, right? Does that shed any light at all on maybe the way our grandparents would have functioned? To a point, 
I can see some of that influence, right? I can, I can, I can see, I can easily see that. In, in some of my grandparents or some of my relatives, that's about how their approach would have been. I don't know if they read that book or not, but I'm just saying it was, it was an influence in the culture of their day. Now, I'm going to continue reading this, <clears throat> this quote, but Spock, Benjamin Spock, advocated a radically different approach. He believed that children come into the world with distinct needs, interests, and abilities, and that the core of good parenting is attending carefully to what each child requires at each stage of development. That's the end of that quote. But I don't have the details here for you. I'm not going to take the time to go into that. But what happened was what Benjamin Spock promoted, while it sounded, what I just read sounded fairly good, you know, giving the child exactly what each individual child needed. But really, underlying all of that was a very humanistic approach to raising children, and very permissive. So Benjamin Spock, in his writings, he said, if a child is showing anger, just let him be angry. Just let him lay on the floor and kick and scream. Because you've you got to get that anger out of them. And the way you get the anger out of them is to let, let them express it. That's just one of the philosophies that he had about raising children. Do you see any results of that in today's world? Since 1946, do you see any? Very humanistic. And remember, the baby boomers were largely raised by this book. I'm talking about society now. Hopefully not too many in the church, but the Christian church. But largely society, the baby boomers were raised by this book. Okay, it didn't affect them so much, maybe. Yeah, some, but... But what happened when the baby boomers raised their generation? Maybe they're getting close to me. I'm my age group here now. But... Um, it is also interesting that Benjamin Spock, in, the, in his writings, he really set the stage for this whole issue of gender-neutral gender parenting. He talks about some of that. At that time, it was kind of like dismissed as like, whatever. But he really laid the groundwork for that. The gender-neutral parenting that we see here is taking hold like a landslide in society today. These were influences that affected generations of people. Baby boomers is a term that is used for those who were born in 1943 after the World War II up until about 1960. It is said of the baby boomers age group that they were work, work-centric. Work-centric. They were, they're a hard-working generation that really built... Um, on the Industrial Revolution and, and brought in the modern era. Sometimes it's, the next generation is called Generation X, which is from 1961 to roughly 1981. And it is interesting that sociologists would say that, that this generation was basically raised by others. Because the baby boomers were work-centric, and many of them even would have two jobs, it was the first generation that was largely raised by either siblings or a babysitter because there was two working parents. 
And then the next generation would be the millennials, sometimes called, from 1982 to 2004. And this is called what I would call the selfie generation. I don't mean that disrespectfully, but I think you understand what I'm saying. You see the progression. After all these years of family units operating as family units, and suddenly there's just like one thing after another just shattering this. Then we see what's happening in society today, and we say, how did we get here? What has happened? And all those things, only in the last few years, have changed a lot of that. I'm going to bring this to a close very quickly. I would like in the next message to expand on some of these things that I'm going to give here at the last. The present day perspective of identity. We presently live in a society that has huge problems of many, many people trying to live their lives without the anchor of solid personal identity. The suicide rate, the mass shootings by young people, all those are indicative of a lost identity. They don't know who they are. That's what you say in the world. But what about as a people of God? What are the issues we need to consider today as parents and as a church in facing these, these pressures? I'm going to give, give five things here before I close. One is that we need to be ready to face the challenges of parenting in this culture. And I know we understand this and it sounds so elementary. But I think we need to step back and take a hard look at this in relation to where we are at. I believe there is a way. But it's going to take the wisdom of God and the sacrifice on our part to make this work. And that's what I would like to encourage, especially when we think about maybe... Lord willing, in the next message. We need to also, secondly, we need to give our children a solid personal identity that will give them stability and guidance in their life. We don't want our, our young people, we don't want our children to suffer from a lack of, of a self-awareness of identity in a wrong way. We also, as parents, number three, we need to be sure that we are not allowing the world to dilute to dilute and subvert our parental influence in our home. And you think about of all these years, the families working together in one way or another as a family unit. A son working with his dad, learning the trade from his dad, whether he was a farmer, whether he was a weaver, whether he was a metal worker, whatever it was. It was one generation after another. They worked together in general. And they learn from each other. It was passed on from one generation to another. Just like that man we were talking about on Friday there from India. You know, he, he was learning the farming from his, his father. You know, and that was the way of life. Most young men never had a choice in their trade. They basically did what their, their father taught them to do. There were some changes. They're too poor. They had to be put out on on hire to maybe someone else because they could not afford to feed them. There were changes that happened, but by and large, there was that continuation. 
And so there was that working together. The world or the society did not influence them. It was not the global village. It was their village. For Jesus, it was Nazareth. He didn't drive up to, to Jerusalem, or he didn't go to Samaria and you know take a job there for, for three weeks and then come back to Nazareth. I'm just using that as an illustration. You understand what I'm saying? And I'm not saying that's wrong in itself. I'm just saying it has an impact. It has an impact. And this is where we're at in this impact in the last short time. So we must be sure that we are not allowing the world to dilute and subvert our parental influence in our homes. Number four, as time moves on, we will need to make more sacrifice to combat the pressures of a decaying culture. I believe this is also very important. And the last one is that we need to be more focused on the blessings and requirements for close brotherhood interactions as we as families, so, uh, so we can stand together in support of each other. Remember, we talked about this last Sunday as well. Daniel was a captive in Babylon. Babylon at that time was at the zenith as a world power. He saw the wealth, he saw the affluence, he saw the corruption and the uh, paganism of Babylon at its zenith because he lived through the destruction of Babylon when it was conquered by Cyrus. Now, you think about that. Again, I'm going to point out that Daniel maintained his personal identity. He maintained that in the city of Babylon all those years. He died there an old man. He maintained that personal identity, not only as the prince of Judah, but even more so as a man of God. How did he do that? It's a challenge for us in our day, what we live with in the culture, tradition, and personal identity. Lord willing, the next time I want to take a closer look at the details of, of, of parenting in relation to these pressures that we face and how God has a way for us. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you're a sovereign God and you look down from the, the heights of heaven upon this earth and understand and know each detail of our lives. We thank you, Father, for your word, we thank you that we have history. And there's so many things that history teaches us and helps us to understand. And Father, we also thank you for your wisdom, that you promised to give us that wisdom as we ask of you, that we can understand the times in which we live. We would have understanding of these times to know what we need to do and what, what needs to be done in order to continue to serve you faithfully as families and as a brotherhood. So, Father, we just pray your blessing upon each of us. May we humbly and carefully continue to look to you for your directions and guidance in today's world. Bless each of our families, each of our parents, each of our young people, each of the children. We may all continue faithful in seeking your will and way for the future. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen.